0: Everyone, Duncan Fletcher here, back for another round of the PADS Athlete Development Podcast series. Our next guest is a professor of psychiatry at the Semel Institute for Neuroscience and Human Behavior at UCLA, and he is board certified in adult and addiction psychiatry. He is currently the co-director of the UCLA Gambling Studies Program. The purpose of this program is to examine the underlying causes and clinical characteristics of gambling disorder in order to develop effective, evidence-based treatment strategies. Furthermore, he's part of the steering committee of the UCLA Cannabis Research Initiative, whose mission is to address the most pressing questions related to the impact of cannabis legalization through rigorous scientific study and discourse across disciplines. We have a fascinating conversation in store for you today. I hope you enjoy the discussion. Please welcome to the podcast, Dr. Timothy Fong. Hi, everyone. Duncan Fletcher here, back for another edition of the PADS Athlete Development Podcast Series. Here with my colleague, Stephanie Thorburn. Stephanie, how are you doing today?
1: Doing well. Excited for another fantastic series.
0: Absolutely. Uh, And we're very pleased to have our guest with us today, Dr. Timothy Fong from UCLA. Dr. Fong, how are you doing today? Doing awesome. Thanks for having me. Well, we're excited to be able to have this conversation with you. We're talking about something that... uh, a lot of athlete development specialists, I'm sure, are aware of as an issue, but they probably don't really know a lot of the details behind it. And we're talking about gambling. So, Dr. Fong, perhaps I could ask you how you came to start studying gambling and uh, its sort of addiction role, and how you sort of focus on athletes as you're going through that process.
2: Well, thank you for that. Well, number one, I grew up in Chicago, a huge Chicago sports fan, just loving every major sports, and that was part of my childhood and early development, Uh, but I went into psychiatry in the late 90s with the idea of really looking at addiction as a brain disease. So you think about the mid-90s, that was when that concept came about, that this wasn't an issue of morality or willpower or just uh, greed, it was an issue of brains changing. But I came out to L.A. in late 1998, and the first thing I saw coming to L.A. was a casino. And right around the turn of the century was a rapid expansion of gambling across America, Tribal casinos, brick and mortar casino, the normalization of poker. Remember poker and Chris Moneymaker, online gambling, and all sorts of things like that. And so everybody, we, all
0: of a sudden, was going everyone, for that bracelet. Right there, you go.
2: that, you know, people were dropping out of college. You know, uh, all sorts of sort of thing. But that was right around 2005 when it became clear that we didn't, as a healthcare professional or as a society, really understand the impact of gambling on the body, the brain, and the mind. We understood and understand alcohol and cannabis and amphetamines and opiates, but we don't really know what happens when you hit that slot machine too many times or what happens if you stay at a poker table for 12 hours straight. You know, what does that do to the body? So I got really interested in that question because as gambling was expanding across the land, it became fascinating to me to say, well, what is this going to do to the public health? Are we going to create a nation of, quote, gambling addicted individuals? And if we are, how do we stop that? So that was 2005, and that's how we started to create our UCLA Gambling Studies program, back then really designed to understand the causes of gambling addiction, uh, developing uh, treatments and prevention strategies, and really just looking at gambling as a whole.
0: And then what, what really kind of got you thinking about the, the role of gambling and, and looking at you know, student athletes and professional athletes? What prompted you to kind of pull the thread on that? And, and why do you think there's a, a subsection of humanity that needs to be looked at when we start talking about professional and elite athletes? So when we start about athletes,
1: I
2: went to Northwestern. And one of the things that happened when I was in college, there was, there was a uh, betting scandal uh, uh, with our kicker, no less, and also with uh, a few of our basketball players. And it turned out they were being paid uh, you know, to do some point shaving sort of things. And you know, laughably, they didn't do it correctly and things like that. But people got into big trouble. And I was always fascinated about that, even in college, thinking, well, why would you do this? You know, why would you risk the integrity of the sport? Why would you risk your reputation? Why would you throw away your future at all? And it always struck me that there there was this very uneasy link between gambling and sports that has always gone hand in hand. I also remember growing up in the 80s, one of the first things I was drawn to in the back sports page was looking at the betting lines or Jimmy the Greek. So it's always been there as part of sports. We would talk about it, but it would always be this kind of shady kind of business about it. So demand around gambling and sports has always been there, but it really wasn't until the last, you know, take it over the last five to six years where we started with Chris Christie wanting to get this uh, legalized, and you had the Supreme Court, you had online gambling. But really, 2018, when the Supreme Court changes everything, that's really when it starts to have what we have here today, this combination of society accepting gambling, states demanding it, states legalizing it. And athletes being swooped up into everything about gambling, not only legalized gambling, but unregulated gambling, themselves gambling on games itself. And so now you look at every news item every few weeks, you're going to see a story about athlete and gambling or gambling and betting on sports and what does that mean for young people. So the long short of it is this relationship between gambling, sports, and athletes' mental health and wellness has always been there. Think back to Pete Rose, think back to Joe Jackson, you know, think back to the Wax Sox scandal a hundred years ago. This is the first time I think we've actually started to think about it from multiple perspectives. I think that's super important.
1: I have a quick question. Um, Can you talk to us a little bit about the effects of gambling can have on one's overall life to help the professionals that will be listening to this, those individuals that are working with athletes day in and day out about how they can identify the signs of addiction?
2: Yeah. You know, and that's such a core thing. We go back to any athletic trainer's um, education. You get alcohol training, you get, you know, things about substance use disorder. You probably get a little bit on suicide prevention and things like that. But in the curriculum, understanding gambling behavior is probably not in there at all. It certainly wasn't there for my medical school. So I start with the very, very beginning. You know, gambling as a behavior is part of the human condition. We do it every single day. Do I take road A or road B to work to get there faster? Do I date John or do I date Jane or do I date both of them? And These are all essentially just gambles we have in our lives. Gambling, as we define it in this sense, though, is putting something of value on an event of uncertain outcome in the hopes of winning a larger reward. So traditionally, we think of that, again, as money, gains of chance, poker, swap machines, betting on NBA finals and things like that. So Unlike, say, alcohol or tobacco, which is another behavior where you ingest a substance into your body, gambling is you're doing a behavior that then triggers and tickles the brain to reactivate. So it's not like there's no, nothing happening in the body, or the brain. Lots of things are happening. So I think for a lot of athletic trainers to understand that is that gambling is a verb, gambling is an action. And when people are gambling, they're activating their body, their brains, and their minds. For the folks with addiction, gambling disorder or gambling addiction, their brains are built differently. I do not use the word damaged. Their brains are built differently so that they react differently to gambling stimulations and cues and that um, through a combination of biological, psychological and social risk factors, they can develop the disorder of gambling addiction. Now what does that look like? That's where in your mind's eye, when you close your mind's eye, if I say what does someone with substance use disorder look like or drug or alcohol addiction? You know, we can come up with some things Sleeping in late, they look disheveled, they're intoxicated, they're stumbling, they're failing to do their life responsibilities, their basic tasks. It's the same thing with gambling. You know, the men and women that I see when they come in with severe gambling disorder, they're not functional. They're not able to do their work, they're not able to show up on time, they're not able to do well. So, for athletic trainers, that can be really puzzling because many of our athletes will look spectacularly great physically that have gambling disorder. But inside, they're really struggling emotionally. They may have problems with sleep. They may be irritable. Uh, They may blame everything else in the world for why things are going wrong. But ultimately, part of the problem is just gambling excessively.
1: Yeah. And that definitely makes sense, you know, especially for those um, individuals in this space of athlete development, knowing that there's that need and that desire for their athletes who want to be the best, who want to compete. They want to win and it's another challenge. Gambling's another challenge uh, where the outcome could be to win and it sends probably those cortisol levels up and they get excited um, and it could start with something so innocent, but that repeated pattern could end up creating some of the other behaviors that you just talked about.
2: You know, and there was a large NCAA study a few years ago, ago to ask that question. Are athletes at higher risk for gambling addiction than say non-athletes? And, and the answer was mixed. It was muddled. Uh, certainly, uh, among the male athletes, there was higher gambling participation rates than uh, male students, and there was also a little bit of a higher rate of gambling addiction among certain sports, basketball and football. Among female athletes, that number was not was exactly the same as as female regular students. So there's some a lot of things to be learned there. I think for the athlete development specialist is number one, we don't have a urine drug test for gambling addiction. We don't have a blood test. We don't have any of those sorts of things. So if you just ask, hey, do you have a gambling problem? You know, that's not going to get a lot of, oh, yes, I do. So it's the hidden addiction. It's, again, when you have gambling disorder, you don't think you have a problem. You think, oh, I have a problem with money, or I have a problem with luck, or I have a partner that doesn't understand what I'm doing, or, you know what, the rest screwed me last night, and that's why I lost. But the core of gambling addiction is continued gambling despite harmful consequences. So it isn't just going to Vegas one time and losing a lot of money. It's repeatedly engaging in gambling behavior and causing life problems. Now, what are those life problems? Financial, it can be emotional, it can be physical. What kind of physical problems can come from gambling addiction? Sleep deprivation is the first one. Just being in a state of emotional stress is bad for the body for athletic trainers I think this is the way we start to make that link when you're in a state of gambling disorder you're in a state of fight or flight all the time you're worried about money you're preoccupied by gambling you're stressed out about lying you're stressed out about covering up your tracks you're worried about getting back to even all that is essentially as you said getting cortisol out in your body dopamine levels that are altered that will affect body's ability to recover ability
0: to perform and ability to just be naturally healthy. I think that's maybe would be really interesting is maybe have you walk through a little bit of the neuroscience in terms of dr- that drives addiction, uh, or particularly gambling addiction. And, you know, I've heard that, uh, obviously, dopamine, definitely, as you just mentioned, plays a role in that. Uh, the, the whole random intermittent reward piece is a huge driver from uh, in terms of how people react to different things. So I was curious, you know, based on the research that you've done, what you've seen, and particularly in athletes, you know, w- what's taking place at the neuroscience level?
2: So I, I I did this talk with an NBA um, athlete a few years ago, and it was he and I were talking to a, another NBA team. And I got to spend um, a few hours with him before, the night before, and it was fascinating because he was very open with his struggles with gambling addiction as well as with his struggles with other mental health. And I said to him, how did you get into the gambling disorder? You know, that's a little bit rare. You didn't get into alcohol, you didn't get into pills, you didn't get into cocaine. And he said... The very first time he went to a casino while in college, he said he walked in and he had a feeling of euphoria that was better than sex. He said, "I've never felt that safe. I've never felt that good." He also said very clearly, "It was never about the money. I could care less whether I win or whether I lose. I just wanted to have that feeling of being safe." And he said the only way to get that was to be in the high rollers room, to be playing two or three spots of blackjack a thousand a hand, he said, I couldn't get that sense of safety playing nickel slots on, uh, on the floor where people would recognize me. And I said, well, then, you know, sure, you had a great time. But what, what then turned it into an addiction? Because he said very simply, I was chasing that feeling. And when he said that, I said, that's exactly what patients with heroin addiction talk about, or alcohol or cannabis addiction. They're chasing that high. They're chasing that feeling of intense emotion. And I think that's what people come to realize with all addictions, whether it's substance use disorders or behavioral addictions like gambling or shopping or other things, or even exercise, that there's a huge, robust initial response to that activity that gets that person's attention. That's that dopamine hit. That's that intensity that, wow, I never felt like this before. That in of itself is natural, but for people with addictive disorders, their initial response is probably a lot more intense than folks who do not have that addiction. So that's that neuroscience in terms of dopamine and serotonin, epinephrine, and their neurocircuits are built a little bit different in their ventral tegmental area, the midbrain area, you wanna get to it. But for athletic trainers, that's how I would describe it. That's the genetic risk. You can't control that. Then you have the psychological risk factors, things like untreated depression, untreated attention deficit disorder, untreated anxiety disorders, untreated trauma is a big one, right? But neurobiologically, when he described that to me, I said, that is the greatest description of neuroscience in action. Because once you got that feeling, you're not gonna pocket that and say, you know what, that's great, let me come back to it in like a year later or two years later. And immediately he described, well, you know, for the first few months, it wasn't that much of a problem because I'd go and I win, I lose, and it didn't start to affect me. But he said it was a few years later when it just started to slowly drag down everything, his money, his athletic ability, because he was tired all the time and he wasn't recovering from his injuries. That's such a key thing for a lot of athletic trainers. If your athlete isn't recovering, despite all the things you're doing, maybe there's some things going on that they're not telling you. Maybe they're staying up way too late. Maybe they're stuck on their phones. Maybe they're taking secret trips to casinos and instead of resting, you know, sitting in a chair for eight, nine hours. I mean, lots of, lot of very interesting links. But from a neuroscience standpoint, I think that's how I would describe it. And, and, and for patients, when I tell them that, listen, this is what your brain is built. This is how your brain just reacts. This is through no fault of your own. That's hugely, hugely relieving. Because there's such a sense when you have a gambling addiction that, you know what, I did this to myself. Uh, I am literally, figuratively a loser. Uh, I'm so embarrassed to admit that I spent hundreds of thousands of dollars, or lost hundreds of thousands of dollars, you know, to the casino. Because when it comes to money, we as a society put such great um, credence in, uh, to money. So if you have a lot of money, we say, "Oh, that must be quote a good person morally." You know, we say if you win a lot of money, you must be very skilled. You must be very good at it. Whereas if you spend a lot of money or lose a lot of money, we're like, "Oh my gosh." wow how could you be so greedy how could you be so stupid how could you be so not uh, showing uh no discipline not, and So we make an equivalence there anyway that's a long roundabout answer but i think that i think showcases exactly what we're, we're talking about when it comes to kind of neuroscience and how people are built differently physically and, and psychologically
0: no i find that stuff fascinating i think it's good for our athlete development specialists to kind of understand that and i guess you know kind of looking at it from your side obviously you're coming at it from a clinical perspective um how do you help these athletes when they sort of identify, hey, I've got an issue, they're, they're presenting with, like you said, they're, they're exhausted, they're stressed, they're depressed, and their bank account has been you know decimated. How do you help? And what's the process for helping an athlete dealing with this kind of an addiction? Well, the first thing is, this is brand new
2: territory for all of us. Uh, athlete development specialists, teams, trainers, agents, uh, team physicians, remember, very little training on this area. Um, so we're all in the very first generation of addressing this. So the way I fold gambling into, I fold it into the same categories of all the things in our lives that affect our our function. Sleep, nutrition, substances, stress management techniques. So I think for any athlete development specialist, it needs to start from the very, very first time you meet an athlete. And you go through your screenings, you go through your, your intake process, and you include gambling behavior or where do you spend your, your, your money, your financial health, maybe you call it that section, or maybe you talk about it as how do you spend your entertainment time. But whatever way it's to capture and to highlight that expectation, that is so key that we are going to include gambling and how you spend your entertainment time, how you spend your financial money at the same level of anything else that's going to affect your body, your brain, and your function. And that's hard, it's a shift. Because for years, we would be like, you know what, don't ask about sex. Don't ask about how they spend their money. Because it's too personal, right? It, it, it's invasive. But now we've come to realize that these private matters are the things that actually drive health and wellness much, much more so. And if there's one thing I could say, by the time patients with gambling disorder show up into my office, it's pretty severe. It's like cancer that's spread. To all the organs, it's metastatic. So, our hope is how do we do early detection of gambling problems and how do we do early prevention? So, I, d- I know now, like in a lot of these leagues, you know, the rookie camps and blah blah blah, you might get some cursory stuff. And I know, like now, the NCAA is starting to say we were concerned about gambling, we're trying to figure out how to get it into our training curriculums, but there's nothing standard yet that's mandated. And it's true for all the leagues, right? But again, Part of that discussion has to start with, we're going to include it at the same level of, of importance as physical health, as mental health, as, uh, as other things.
0: And you kind of said something there that was great. Like when they get to you, you know, the wheels have fallen off the proverbial bus. And I guess you kind of talked about, you know, here's some questions you can ask. I like that. You know, how do you spend your entertainment time? Uh, you know, what are you doing with your money? I think those are all good conversations. What are some other meaningful ways to really to have that conversation with a with a professional or an elite athlete to say, hey, let's really try and engage in a conversation around this. How are athlete development specialists able to be proactive from your perspective to really kind of cut through the veneer as to how an athlete is doing? I think there's a couple of things. First, I I would start with
2: um, athlete development specialists saying, hey, what's your relationship with gambling? What are your views on gambling and betting on sports? Um, what do you know about, uh, gambling addiction and and has anyone in your life, as far as you know, been affected by this, uh, things like open discussions. If you, you know, you ended up developing problems with gambling, what would you do? Who would you call? And I think that's, that's a good starting point. Just having that open discussion. I think, you know, having former athletes that have gambling problems, talking to athletes, it's a mixed bag. Sometimes it's kind of scare them straight sort of stuff. Other times it's like, oh, well, that's not going to happen to me because I'm not that guy. You know, we see that a lot. So what we knew, no, really works is constantly having this as part of the regular checkup, uh, part of the annual screenings. Like for instance, at UCLA, one of the things we're doing is every athlete that's coming back for you know their annual physical before the start of the season, we're including a few questions about gambling behavior in that screening tool. So you know, just, and there are you know, there are very simple questions like, you know, in the last 12 months, have you, uh, you know, had to borrow money from other people to gamble or have you ever lied to anyone about your gambling behavior? You know, real basic screening questions that we throw in there along with suicide questions and substance use questions. So we do that as part of our standard kind of rhythm. I think it also starts from the top. I think now as many of our athletes have said to me, you know what? Yes, we understand this is an addiction, but we see such hypocrisy when The leagues are literally sleeping in bed with gambling companies. And it creates this weird conflict to say, you know, do as I say, not as I do, or whatever that saying is. And I think that needs to be embraced because are they in really deep pockets with cannabis companies yet? No. Tobacco? No. Alcohol companies? Not as directly as this. So I had an athlete once who literally had, you know, on his jersey, you know, a casino. And he struggled with that same casino in terms of developing an addiction. And so you go back to what could an athlete, athlete development specialist do at the very beginning? I think it starts from the very first time they meet and saying, hey, as part of one of the things that we know in the modern day era, the gambling is everywhere. And we know that, the, that for you know a small percentage of people can develop this disorder. We want to make sure you and your family are not part of that. And that's really key, it's not, it's not just the athlete, people around the athletes that can be impacted or they themselves. I had another athlete similarly who was really struggling with his wife who had a severe gambling problem and he felt powerless and she was just taking his check and it was all gone and he just didn't know what to do. And clearly those are the conversations I think the role of the athlete development specialist has really evolved. It's more than just simply get your body Tighter and stronger and faster. It's now into this era of mental health uh, educating, and I think what's hard, you're many of our elite athletes are. Like, I don't want to hear this. This isn't going to pertain to me, and that may be true the first time, but if they keep hearing it over and over, eventually it's going to sink in. And I think that the strategy has to be done in a humane, dignified, respectful way that isn't so. All right, you should not gamble. Do not do this. You know, and I think that's the way that athletes and all of us would embrace educational uh, aspect.
1: You know, you just said gambling is everywhere. And as we were doing some research prior to this call, we we, um, found an article where the Los Angeles Times reported that a national phone line for people needing help with gambling grew by 30% to 22,000 calls per month in 2021 from 17,000 in 2019. Just wondering, would you attribute attribute this increase due to the pandemic, or do you think there's other factors that could have caused this increase?
2: Well, there's all sorts of things about that that story that are deeper. So first off, again, that's a good starting point is that every state has these 800 numbers for anyone who wants to call to get more information or get help related to their gambling problem or someone else's. So if you're worried about someone else's. Here in California, 1-800-GAMBLER, you call that, you can get... Uh, state-of-the-art information, and then you get links to therapists, you know, confidential. So that's a good resource for everybody. Number two, during the pandemic, yes, gambling options went up because we were all home, but they also went up because mobile sports betting became more legalized. Online gambling has been there since the late 90s. It's never gone away. And, it's a, and that's also become more sophisticated. So unregulated online casinos and unregulated uh, sports betting sites have become so prolific and easy to use. Anyone can get in on them, you know, without any d- delay. The curious thing is that with those increase in helpline calls, not all of them are actually calls from people looking for help for gambling. They're calls looking for, hey, what's the line on the Celtics game tonight? Um, how do I do a parlay? You know, it's so it's 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 a weird story. You know, it's not just help seeking. It's just straight calls. So you see, it's not 100% accurate that there's more problems, there's definitely, in my mind, yes, there's more problems starting because there's just more gambling. Um, unlike 20, 30 years ago, where I, you know, if you didn't have something, imagine in the late 90s, if the three of us wanted to bet on a game and we were sitting in our college dorm room in Connecticut, what would we do? We couldn't do it. We'd have to either know a guy or we had to drive into the city to go meet a guy and know there was a guy, you know, and actually give him cash. If the three of us were sitting in our dorm room in Connecticut today, or in New York, we could literally open up a gambling account, deposit money from our uh, PayPal, or from uh, Venmo, or from our savings account, and be gambling literally within 30 minutes or less, maybe even 10 minutes or less. So that's part of the story now in 2022. 30 plus states have legalized sports betting. Some of these states have mobile sports betting, but the ability to gamble on sports in your own home on your phone with rapid technology is faster than anything we ever had before. So that's why over the last two years, we've seen a rise not only from the pandemic, but also because of the demand combined with the access and the technology that we now have for betting on sports uh, quickly and, 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 and instantly.
0: Dr. Fong, what are you doing from a research perspective as it relates to sports? I know you've got a, an institute that focuses on this, where is your, your research track going to you, and, and what are you looking at in the athlete world?
2: So number one, um, the question is, when you treat someone with a sports gambling addiction, is it exactly the same treatment you would do for someone with, say, a slot machine addiction? Um, we're not sure. We think the principles are the same. Uh, we know the consequences look similar, but there are differences in you know, mindset and psychology and how they view money and how they view gambling and things like that. So, uh, so we're trying to develop more speci- specific treatment plans and specific treatment strategies for sports betters compared to non-sports bettors. That's number one. Number two, in California, obviously we are looking at this year in fall 2022 elections, uh, looking at the question of should California legalize sports betting. And if that's true, I think we're going to be uh, very interested in to, to look at before and after to look at what impact does it have on the public health? So in other words, we're collecting data now to see you know, how prevalent is sports betting, what uh, do people do, where do they get money, you know, how do they do it? And let's say two or three years down the road, you know, if that number of men and women with gambling addiction goes up or if we see more you know, suicides or receive more bankruptcy, could that be attributable to the legalization of sports betting? We're not sure. When it comes to athletes, um, definitely it's on the educational front. And uh, we're working with a number of organizations that uh, do some of these lived experience uh, talks with athletes to try and uh, improve that education. I'm working with a, I don't even know what they are. They're like this, um, they're not a sports betting company, but they do the analytics behind the numbers. So they are the ones that generate the line or they're they're the ones that feed gambling information to leagues. Um, I don't even know what you would call those sorts of things, sports analytic companies. Yeah, Yeah. I I think that's probably the right word for it, yeah. Yeah, and so we're working with them to create some online curriculum that can be used geared toward athletes to talk about signs and symptoms of gambling disorder. Um, So that's something. But for athletes specifically, it goes back to really understanding how to protect them from developing gambling disorder. Because yes, they have a unique worldview. Yes, they have a unique world uh, existence. An example, I had an athlete uh, come in a couple of weeks ago who talked about he had no interest in gambling, zero. He's like, this isn't my thing. It doesn't get me excited. But he does like looking at the lines and he likes to know what the lines are. And, and he openly says to me, is it problematic if I take an extra jump shot uh, at the end of the game to cover the spread? Um, is it problematic if I hold the ball knowing that people were betting on me to score 25 points, and I'm sitting at 24. And it kind of messed with his head. So it made him, like, he had all sorts of questions, like, you know, am I doing the right thing? How do I handle questions from the media about these things? How do I handle questions from my friends about why didn't you take that jump shot to cover the spread, that sort of thing. So it's opened up this whole new territory for athletes about the impact of gambling on their psyche and their mental health. Nothing at all with gambling addiction, just gambling itself impacting either their athletic performance or potentially uh, whatnot. I had another athlete who was really interesting. who was a combat sports uh, person who knew what the number was, and he knew he was a major favorite to win. And he said that number totally messed with his head in terms of performance. And he said, I was so nervous because the entire time I was thinking about this number, about how I'm like, I'm like a five-to-one favorite, and I'm supposed to knock this guy out in the first round. He lost. And he came back to me and he said to me, that gambling number messed with my athletic performance. I think that is the new era we really have to dive into because you can't have athletes not look at this stuff. You can't say, oh, don't pay attention to this stuff. And when they're going to be barraged either on social media or by the media themselves, by family and friends, I think we need to develop a, a better tool for athlete development specialists on how to manage that stress that comes with gambling lines
0: that that's fascinating uh and i'm glad you told those two stories because it's almost like a meta thing it's like you're seeing yourself in the game even though you are the game and how do you react to how people perceive what you should do that that is absolutely fascinating and i hadn't really thought of it like that so i'm curious how do you counsel athletes to to examine sort of themselves in that in that environment as you know here's your line this is the round you're going to you know, win or lose in, like how, how, what is the coaching that you provide athletes? And, and maybe that's something that obviously our folks need to learn more about and become more adept at, but maybe there's a couple of nuggets you could give them so they could have a, at least an initial conversation with an athlete.
2: Yeah, I, I think this is, this is where I'd love to get a room of athlete development specialists. We can craft some sort of best practices sort of. For me, it's standard psychotherapy and psychotherapy is exploring the meaning of, uh, of things. Uh, how does this make you feel? What are your thoughts that come out of it? What does this remind you of? Does this trigger something in you that goes back to your childhood? But just by talking about it in of itself is incredibly helpful. Um, that's huge. I mean, and I've had so many athletes say to me, you know what? No one else, I can feel safe with talking about this. I don't talk about it with my coach as a trainer because they're going to be worried that I'm gambling on the game. I don't necessarily talk about it with my teammates because they're like, well, why are you bothered by that? That's not a thing. Just get it out of your head. Certainly not going to talk about it with my friends that don't understand the pressure that we athletes go through. So that nugget number one, I think, is just talking about it. And I think whether that's in a open forum or having you know, a, a specific session on this, I think that's helpful. I think every athlete goes through this very differently. There's some that never look at it at all. I had Uh, I bring it up only because by the time athletes see me, I see a lot of athletes, not just for gambling. I see them for all sorts of things, depression, anxiety, social anxiety, alcohol, cannabis problems, you know, uh, you name it. Um, But it's just a habit of mine because I do the gambling and bring this up all the time as, hey, you know, I'm wondering what are your thoughts about this? So I think as the field evolves, I think we're going to get more and more athletes recognizing this is part of being an athlete and just like, how 20 years ago no one, ever, no one ever talked about like sleep hygiene as an important part of being an athlete right i think in time we're going to be talking about okay how do you handle gambling and news about gambling and it impacts your mental health and your athletic performance so it's going to be ultimately included because i don't say things to athletes like oh well then just don't look at social media or don't look at the betting lines or don't watch espn and that's a big one because it's it's. And he had another athlete who's like, well, I, I didn't even know this was an issue. I was watching on ESPN, and they spent five minutes on, you know, the, the betting line. And he said after that, that really got me concerned because he actually was worried, well, what if, you know, I don't cover? Are there going to be people that get really angry and upset at me? And that, that brought up a lot of anxiety that was never present before. So the bottom line is that's, a, that's the number one nugget is to say we have to bring it out into the open as a topic of discussion. Uh, and again, I can't even imagine an athlete development specialist bringing it in and say, hey, you know what, team, uh, the line is we're favored by eight tonight. What do we think about that? You know, I, I don't know whether coaches do that. I'm sure some do, some don't. Um, but I certainly think that's the modern age where people have to bring that up and, and, and figure out, you know, uh, how that impacts. Because I was thinking about that for myself. You know, if I was like, oh, you know, here's a doctor and you're under a lot of pressure and suddenly here's the likelihood that I'm going to get this patient better and everyone knew about that. You know, that's incredibly, that's incredibly like,
0: difficult to deal with, being in, in the public spotlight. That's a whole other level of pressure. Yeah, that, re- that really is an interesting perspective, and, and I'm glad you shared that. And I think that a lot of the folks listening to this conversation are going to have questions around that and, and how they have those conversations. And I think, as you said, this whole environment is continuing to evolve very quickly and expand, uh, particularly as it relates to student athletes. And maybe, Steph, you could hit on that.
1: Yeah, I was just wondering, you know, especially with your, your time at UCLA, um, and they have you know, quite an extensive athletic program, have you noticed any trends or relationships between the rise in student-athletes NIL deals and gambling? And then I have a second part, but just if you could tackle that question first.
2: So UCLA just came out with some NIL policies and procedure, um, and, you know, it, and they were a little bit, I think maybe a year behind some of the others, and it's still very, very brand new. I think what we're concerned about is wondering what is it like if you're in a NIL deal with uh, a gambling industry? You know, that hasn't happened yet. So that would be my number one thing. Like if you're actually working with a casino or working with a an online sports betting thing, you know, what does that actually mean? So I was thinking about this. I was in Colorado a few months ago and, you know, you know, so much mobile sports betting and a lot of ads. And there was, you know, this Hall of Fame quarterback talking about, the gambling app being the best gambling app out there. You know, 10 years ago, that never would have occurred. This again, that uncommon and un you know, almost unsafe, you know, relationship between gambling and sports. Now it's right there out in the open. Is that a bad thing or a good thing? You know, I think it's an important thing for us to look at moving forward. For our student athletes, I think it's important for to remember that, you know, and we talk with them a little bit about NIL deals, is that, you know, this is so new. No one really knows how this is going to impact you five years or 10 years down the road. Um, no one wants to be taken advantage of. No one wants to lose opportunities as well. But I tell you know our athletes when it comes to NIL deals is, yes, of course, being careful makes sense. But what's more important is understanding what could happen in two to four years if it goes poorly. Meaning, and I think that's where we end up spending a lot of time on that. The second part of this is that we still don't have a gambling quote policy that's super clear and right in your face for athletes yes they when they come in and at ucla they clearly have substance policies you know about using the looks of drugs about cannabis about alcohol but we don't have anything in writing that says to them you should not gamble or beware of gambling because gambling is an interesting thing is still 21 and over Now, there are some casinos scattered throughout America that are 18 and over, but the vast majority of casinos are still 18 and over. The lottery is 21 and over. And yet, we don't have a written policy. And that's where I wish we had more of this by schools handing to athletes and saying, gambling is still an adult activity that's 21 and over. Any gambling activity you do underage is technically breaking the law. Now, you see how we've all come to accept and acknowledge that gambling is, quote, completely societally acceptable. But it's still technically breaking the law. If an 18-year-old college student athlete walked into a Las Vegas casino and plays blackjack, that is breaking the law. But have we ever heard stories of anyone being arrested for underage gambling? Absolutely not. So I think the schools themselves have to go back and, and, and recognize that we have to enforce existing laws that promote that. The other thing, and this is probably the most important thing for me I noticed, is that Too often, I see colleges entering direct partnerships with casinos or gambling industry. And they actually have on college properties, you know, signage. Uh, I'm a little uneasy about that when you walk into a college, say, basketball stadium, and you see signs for casinos promoting casino when technically, again, it's 21 and over. Or I'm aware of one school that encourages their school or their kids to sign up and say, hey, you know, if you sign up on our campus and you get and you sign up for a gambling app, you're going to get all these bonuses and benefits. And so again, it's an uneasy relationship where I think people have failed to understand that there are potential consequences of gambling and addiction, but also that it's still the law. You got to be 21 to gamble. You know, well,
1: it, It's so interesting You know, when you think from the collegiate model, because the NCA years ago came out with the campaign, don't bet on it, and it's sports gambling, but um, such a fine line that you, you tell your student-athletes, don't bet on sports, but they're doing blackjack or as a slot machines. And it can end up going from something as simple, one might say, as, a, as you know, blackjack or it's slots to then they start crossing over that line to something that could be illegal because they're underage right. or um, they're betting on a sport that the NCA has sanctioned is illegal and that's an NCA violation and they can lose their eligibility as well as the team's depending on what sport it is.
2: Yeah, it's really complicated because I remember that um... – that uh, that campaign, and it, it always struck with it because it should have been more than just don't bet on sport. It should have been don't uh, don't bet on sport for what reason, uh, and it and should it have been don't bet at all. No, I mean don't bet on your sport, of course not. And I think explaining that better would be a lot better to say, yeah. you know, why, what the reasons why you can't, and it's not just sports integrity; it's also against the law. I think that was the big one for me.
1: Yeah, and and I'll say from someone who who ran compliance and was on a college campus, I really took the time with my student-athletes to explain um, what it meant and why and the impact it would have for the individual, their team, and potentially the institution. Because if you just give them a rule and there's no background, it doesn't resonate with them.
0: And I think... You know dr. Fong, I think but before we wrap, I think one of the interesting things about the work that you do is not only are you focused on on uh on gambling and gambling addiction is that uh, you also research cannabis in an athletic context as well, and I think this might be a great opportunity for a teaser for another future podcast that we hope to have here. Maybe you could just briefly talk about the work that you're currently doing uh research wise on on cannabis and sport
2: yeah, I know so. After we built the gambling studies program, uh, we were doing a lot of work and uh, all that. And then in California, what happened was that state, California legalized cannabis in 2016. And that became another clear, clear uh, and obvious area of important research to focus on, understand the impact of cannabis on body, brain and mind. And for me as an addiction psychiatrist, preventing and treating cannabis, addiction, cannabis use disorder. So then what started to happen, there was this kind of natural synergy between the work that we started to do with athletes and mental health and just so much cannabis coming through. And a few years ago, our our, our department, we were just seeing so many positive cannabis tests. Uh, And then NCAA had their rules and the Pac-12 had their rules about cannabis. And then, um, you know, UCLA had its own rules. And ultimately, I was really curious about these questions. Is cannabis an athletic, um, is it a performance enhancer? Um, what do we do with cannabis and addiction in athletes? Um, if cannabis is so widespread used in so many professional athletes, is this a good thing? Is this a horrible thing? You know, uh, Where do we stand on this? And so the last few years, that's where we built a UCLA Cannabis Research Initiative. We're now named UCLA Center for Cannabis and Cannabinoids. Uh, we've been very interested in this question about cannabis on pain, cannabis on athletic performance, cannabis uh, addiction, uh, and so we started to do a number of clinical trials and look at that. Um, but to give you a teaser on some of the burning questions in athletics, again, I had a, um, a couple of athletes who come to my office who said, if I didn't use cannabis throughout my athletic career, I would have been forced to retire years ago because it really helped me with pain and sleep. I've had other athletes who became so psychotic on cannabis is that they lost their careers very quickly. I had other athletes who, who used cannabis in an unhealthy way that became suicidal. So that question is so, so interesting. Things like for college, what do you do when 40, 50% of your team is using cannabis on a regular basis? And you as a school, an athletic development specialist or trainer as a coach know that. What do you do when drug levels of cannabis that are acceptable change all the time? from five nanograms all the way up to 100, 150? Um, what are the implications you know, for student athletes? Why is it still legal? Why is it not legal? You know, Lots of fascinating questions about performance. I think it boils down to a couple of things. Number one, we know that cannabis can be very effective for pain management, but at the same time, and it can be really a wonderful um, tool to minimize your exposure to other more powerful substances like opiates. That's great. But we also know there are these side effects from cannabis as well, you know, addiction and nausea and all sorts of other problems with it there as well. So it's a whole fascinating world. Then you're going to get into this linkage between cannabis, athletes, industry, NIL deals, maybe endorsements, popular culture, branding, all sorts of fascinating things like that. And you see a lot of the leagues changing their rules on cannabis quickly, but some haven't, some have. Um, You know, I think just that pure question about how its impact on athletic performance is fascinating. As an example, in the combat sports world or in um, extreme sports like marathons, there's no doubt that cannabis can be performance enhancing, allow you to train harder, allow you to endure, to put up with just the pain and agony of running 26 miles. So cannabis can really help you perform better. Uh, I've had a professional golfer who, who said, cannabis allowed me to be much calmer putting I didn't get the yips and i've had others who use cannabis and they had terrible performance athletically and they're like well the reason i did so badly was because of you know the rest or whatnot and no it was because
0: you were intoxicated at the time that you were playing the game
2: and that might be a problem so
0: well, that is a, a phenomenal teaser for our next conversation. But I think critically, you've hit on a number of issues that are particularly important and relevant to our, our membership here at PADS. Uh, so uh, on behalf of our global partners, uh, thanks again, Dr. Fong, for agreeing to talk to us today. Really appreciate it. Really great. And if people want to reach out and find us, they can
2: find us at UCLAGamblingProgram.org or you can hit me up on Twitter at
0: Fongster98. that is a sweet twitter (laughs) handle i like it we'll make sure that information gets shared again thank you very much for making the time today to connect